Welcome to the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode 91. Episode 91. I'm your host, Brian Eve. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast is part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network, along with uh, Riley Bowman and uh, Rob Beckman over there at Firearms Trainers Podcast. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners. We tackle them from the perspective of concealed carriers and law enforcement officers to give you both angles of discussion. Today, I'm going to be joined by DB again. DB's back with a quickness. We're going to talk about what society expects from policing these days. That's going to be an interesting one. Daryl's actually brought notes this time, so... First, a word from our sponsors. Sponsor number one is KSG Armory. If you haven't checked them out, ksgarmory.com. Uh, the <laughs> the holsters that I'm using exclusively right now, uh, the Declaration holster is a single-side clip holster that I'm using. Also, EDC Belt Company, as always, edcbeltco.com. If you haven't, uh, I do have a Patreon. You can check that out. It's at Eastridge Training and Consulting on Patreon. Uh, just writing some lifestyle articles. So check it out if you get a chance. And for now, let's bring in our guest. Right. And we're back with DB. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I didn't record that, but that I found that the uh, that, that little sound bites an out icebreaker. So yeah, it, it worked pretty good. Another little Leroy Jenkins. <laughs> yeah. That, a lot of that going on. <laughs> yeah. I snuck that one into, I think it was Lee Weems podcast. I hit that while he was talking about an incident or something. And I hit the, the Leroy Jenkins soundbite and, and, uh, followed in short succession by that one. So yeah, uh, perfect. Turn a kid, you know, you turn a kid loose in the candy store. He's going to get, now, now that I figured all this tech out, but uh, but we were good. the topic of tonight's discussion is the public's expectation of modern policing. What does the public actually want? Actually and want? That's, actually want? Okay. And I, you know, I don't think anybody's really. And this is not new. This is goes back quite a ways. And I'll I'll sort of intro this on where this came from in DB world because I've been sort of applying this for as long as I can remember. Um, as a young policeman, my dad used to like to come out and go on ride-alongs at yeah. the police department. You know, he's you know been heavily involved in pal boxing. You know, he does it like a daily job for about the last thirty years. Uh, so he, he really likes that kind of stuff. So he used to come out and go on ride alongs, but we had a department policy that doesn't allow him to ride with me. So he would ride with my best friend and shooting partner and beat partner and stuff. So we got to see a lot of each other, but he was in the car with somebody who was disliked by the PD by a little more than me, um, <laughs> which is always good. So what a lot of people don't know is my dad, uh, I came from a family of a business genius. My dad is a literally one of the top of the food chain in the business world. He was the uh, United Jewish Peel uh, Businessman of the Year. That's a big, big one to pull. The largest Jewish organization in the country, Businessman of the Year. You're, you're doing something right. And he was uh, sort of, I've modeled my life around him because I grew up with him. And he was big on 
thinking outside the box, uh, D- doing it the way we always did is probably wrong. Uh, training your your people is the most important thing you can do as a leader, these kind of things. And, and it paid off because he was very good at what he did by not doing things the way everybody else did. He also came up in the companies he worked for. Uh, he came up from the absolute bottom to the top, which when you do that, you tend to have a pretty good idea of how everything really works. Right. Uh, so he made a lot of really cool observations uh, about policing based on going on ride-alongs on graveyard on weekends with me and my buddy. And one of the things he said was, you know, or one of the things we talked about was a lot of uh, assessing how promotions were done, how PDs were run and stuff. And it was all sort of, uh, he made some incredible observations of police management that were pretty funny. Um, but one of the things, you know, as he said, is a lot of business kind of doesn't, it's hard to apply a business mindset to policing because there's no monetary profit loss calculation you can do on it. It's not really a product so I, that you sell and, and, right. and recover so, a return, right? And that sort of really hit me and I put my mind to it. And I, I, I really thought about that and I said, well, what, what can you use for a profit loss assessment of police work? And here's what I came up with. 911 response times. I okay. kind of looked at this of what does the public expect and what is the product we're delivering to the public? And most of the true public is uh, in any municipal police department, county sheriff, whatever, typical patrolling law enforcement agency is you pay property taxes. And in exchange for that fee that you're paying, you have a certain expectation that when you pick up the phone and dial 911, because it's probably the worst moment of your life. Some people are abusers of that, but for a majority of the public, when they pick up and dial 911, one, they're either having an emergency that requires the police department, the fire department, or both, a combination thereof, and they're having the worst day of their life. So what what does the public really, really expect out of their local police agency? Well, what they expect is when they pick up the phone and dial 911 and basically cash out their property taxes, and I don't care if they're renters because guess what? Whoever owns the property is paying for it too. But if you have a phone, somebody's probably paying taxes for locally that's supporting the, the your first responders. And the public has this expectation that when they're having the worst day of their life or they're having an emergency and they pick up the phone and dial 911, that somebody gets there really quick. And whoever arrives to the emergency they're ha- having is highly competent to handle their emergency. That's why they're picking up the phone. And I started asking myself, is that really what we're doing around here at the agency I worked for, which was no different than any of the other ones. And I changed sort of the whole way I did police work based on that model of what I considered my profit loss. This came to fruition when I had a new sergeant uh, do an, come in to give me an evaluation. And she was a genius, uh, ended up becoming one of my best friends in the whole world. But she had been a detective, uh, went out to the sheriff's department, was flying in their helicopter for years and kind of got promoted and came back. Hadn't been in patrol a while. So she calls me in for my evaluation. 
you've probably had plenty like this. Your, uh, your ticket writing sucks. Don't care. Uh, you know, some of your arrest stats are not in line with everybody else in your shift. Those are all lies. I don't care. Okay. You know, what am I going to do with the unsuper? She goes, you know, they told me you were unsupervisable. <laughs> you know, <laughs> pretty much. Here, here it is. And I said, you know, I go, well, let me give you an example. So all those misdemeanors, all these statistics you're talking about, I go, these are all manipulated by the officers on the shifts in order because they know this is how you guys do evals. Like I said, she was literally Mensa genius level smart lady. She says, well, explain that to me. Okay. Uh, what most of the officers, for example, if I pull a car over, write a tick, you know, I, and, and arrest a driver for under the influence of drugs and a warrant and whatever, I go, what most of these clowns are doing is they're going to write a ticket for the probable cause. They're going to get another, going to pull a report for the impound. They're going to pull a report number for the uh, misdemeanor warrant arrest. They're going to pull another report number for the whatever else is on there. And I go, they're going to, they're going to stat that. It looks like they made four arrests and wrote a ticket on one traffic stop. I go, the way I do, it's a little different. I go, I leave the probable cause because if I write them a ticket for it, if they're smart, they'll run down to court the next day and plead guilty to it. And there goes my probable cause. But I leave it because I want that broken windshield or bad taillight or whatever's wrong with the car. I want that to stay there. So the next person has probable cause to stop the vehicle. You know, the next officer down the road, because they're probably not going to fix that. But it gave me probable cause for the stop. I said, I don't double stat the arrest. The misdemeanor warrant goes in just like the rest of the rest. I do the entire thing on one report because it's one incident. And that's how it happened. And it's a lot easier in court to, uh, for me to get convictions based on setting a case up like this. So she thought this was interesting. So then it came, well, what are, what are you doing out there? I go, I patrol my beat. I make sure that, um, and I'm really after people with guns and violent offenders and stuff. Okay, go away. All right. I left. Well, unlike any other supervisor I had before, she ran down to the uh, crime analysis and changed all the filters they use for doing an evaluation. She calls me in about a week later and says, okay, I'm ready to do your evaluation. And I changed all the statistics. She goes, did you know that you have a sub two minute response time to a priority one call on your beat? I didn't know what the numbers are, but I assumed it's probably close to that. He goes, nobody has a sub two minute response time. I go, I know, because I'm in my beat where I'm supposed to be. She goes, do you also know that you leave the department in in progress felony arrests for violent in progress felonies? Uh, doesn't surprise me either, because I'm in my beat where I'm supposed to be doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. So when those calls come out, I'm able to jump on them and actually get people who are robbing stores or doing whatever they're doing in progress while that's happening. So it kind of opened her eyes. So from then on, we ate dinner together every night so I could report to her what's really going on in the world. And she became one of the best supervisors I've ever been around. This, to me, is what we've lost in police work, is let's talk about some of my favorites. Narcotics. What drives narcotics in most departments and agencies? Mm, good question. Drives. What do they put on? What do they put on TV all the time? What do they always want to talk about? Narcotics. 
how much dope they got. Oh, yeah. I get I get where you're going. Right? Okay. It, it's yeah. all about the quantity of dope we've recovered. Do you think most people care in a community that your high traffic dope unit or task force people stopped a big rig out on the highway four cities away and got a trailer tra- tractor trailer f- truck full of dope? Do you think they really care? No, not It doesn't affect them. No, it really doesn't affect them. Um, What is driving those? I saw it firsthand, and you're old enough to have seen it too. Does asset forfeiture play a big role in what kind of investigations we're doing? Potentially. Yeah. Priorities. If you have a chance to go after some major player who's running a lot of money, has lots of cars, houses, property, and stuff, is that going to take precedence? Over the guy selling crack on the corner. Uh, it can, yeah. Absolutely. It's, I mean, let's not, that's going to play priorities in most narcotics units. That's what they want to do. The thing is, though, is what is the thing that is ruining most of our neighborhoods? Street level narcotics trafficking. Right. How important do we place that? Well, with uh the current state that i live in yeah it being a possession being a misdemeanor now (laughs) Uh, why bother why Why, why, i get it i I mean why bother with your and then who are the ones who always want to fight with the police cause problems the court system doesn't do anything with who are those your neighborhood dope dealers so we're basically given almost a free pass to the people who are generating 911 calls, who are the people who make it. At, now, what do those people do to a neighborhood they move into? They destroy the entire neighborhood. Yeah, they over turn time. The toil, yeah. entire neighborhood becomes a drive-up drug mark. You get your drive-by shootings. You get your violence associated with turf. You get every problem in the world, and you are dragging dregs of society into a neighborhood that probably doesn't deserve it. And if that happens long enough, that neighborhood never recovers and it becomes a slum. And we have all seen those neighborhoods in the areas we've worked that were once, and you can see there's always some old lady who lives in one of those neighborhoods who still has a white picket fence mowed lawn and a well-maintained house because she can't get out. I got to interject. Um, when I went from night shift to day shift, one of the things that I used to really focus on, uh, because I had a, I had a, uh, an associate that became a supervisor that, that he was a mentor to me, uh, when it was daytime and I could see everything, uh, I would always try to stop when somebody was mowing their yard. Here's why, because I'd get out and I'd go, Hey, and my conversation starter was, Hey, I got an ice chest with some bottled water in it. You want a bottle of water, man? It's too hot to be out. You know, that whole icebreaker. And within three to five minutes, I'd hear, Hey, you see where that car is illegally parked down there and the grass is overgrown, man, there's something really going on over there. I wish somebody would pay attention to that. So I could drive through the neighborhoods in my, my beat, my district. And I could, I could tell you where the problems were if there was someone occupying a house by whether the yard was mowed or not. 
Yeah, Within- and, you know, we, we did it. One of the things when I worked our bicycle unit, we transformed it from what it was into a straight up crime suppression unit. And we worked nothing but crap areas on bikes. And it was the same thing. When you're on a bicycle, you're approachable. Everybody knows us in the neighborhood. We talk to hundreds of people every day. And a lot of those people will go, hey, <laughs> apartment 17 down there, that's where they're dealing all the dope. Because they don't want to live with that garbage either. Right. You know, just because they're poor doesn't mean it's okay for them to live in garbage or that everybody in those neighborhoods is involved in criminal activity, enslaved by criminal activity with the poverty. Here's here's something that, that came to me when I was on day shift. I had people that were longtime residents. I'm talking like our grandparents, you know, like my grandparents' age that moved in when that was a middle-class blue-collar neighborhood. All, all of those neighborhoods were. Right. And as property taxes increased and pensions stayed the same and, well, so-and-so died, they left their house to their grandkid and their grandkids' friends and all this stuff. That was, at the core, what I saw was that there were people that had you know, the, the upper middle class echelon of, of, you know, society that were now, okay, I've passed the point I can get another job. And I live in a place that now, because of the crime surrounding me, my economic status has dropped and the value of my property that they told me, yeah, you're 20, you need to buy a house and you need to live there forever. And someday that'll be part of your portfolio is now tanked uh, and they're stuck, but that doesn't mean that they are because they're in a now impoverished neighborhood that they are some part of the criminal element, right? No. And that's what I found particularly working bikes or with my philosophy of sort of, I'm out here to respond to calls or to prevent calls from happening is working that stuff because, and this is what allowing the media politicians and police executives to speak for you gets you is cops. Now do not want to go into those places and do police work because we have so demonized the officers who do that. You'd be foolish to go into those neighborhoods to essentially save the kids in there that have a potential of getting out through education there's no reason to do it. We have made that bad. I tell people, I guarantee you, I saved more children of color by being the not looking like them cop in the neighborhood, taking gang members to jail and drug dealers to jail to make those neighborhoods a little safer or to put in place a methodology that we can get some of those kids out of there. Because they didn't get recruited into a gang, they didn't get shot, they didn't get drug dealing forced on them, whatever, or they got to see the negatives of dope dealing. Mm -hmm. Instead of the dope dealers having all the money, the cops never talked to them and whatever, they're seeing these guys are going to jail all the time and they're going hard. So we have demonized the very thing that used to motivate people to help people in those neighborhoods. And then, you know, you add to that, you know, everybody likes to talk about cops programs run by the feds. I'm going to dispel what a bunch of 
garbage that is. Um, when I came on the job, beat integrity was everything. You kept a clean beat. That was your job. People shouldn't have to come into your beat to take paper, to do stuff. You better know who's in the beat, who's doing stuff, what's going on. The most legendary cops, there was a time when the guys who worked 20 plus years in one beat in patrol were legends absolute legends they knew everything it's who the detectives went to for info they knew everything and everything going on in those neighborhoods what does police management think of those people today they're losers they don't don't have aspirations to do anything else anybody who stays in patrol and wants to work that kind of stuff their whole career are losers instead of them being on a pedestal as the greatest source of information on what's going on in a neighborhood, they are now that's considered loser stuff. Then we come up with, you know, the federalized cops programs. And I watched that when it happened under, I think, a Clinton administration where the feds yeah. were given all this money to do these cops program. Okay. You know what? Our cops guys work. They were out, um, doing enforcement on illegal aliens selling flowers and citrus fruits at off ramps. They were doing these federal grants for seatbelt enforcement. So the whole department's short staffed. We're running, we're always short staffed. You're doing all this stuff, but we're bringing guys in on overtime paid by the feds to drive around and write seatbelt tickets because federal funding says that we will give you this much money to pay for that, to write seatbelt tickets. So you've got a fully competent police officer or two driving around a car doing nothing but writing seatbelt tickets because the feds are paying them to do it. Could that, those officers be better used for something in the community? I would think so. Now, if you've got an area that has a high level of fatal traffic collisions or maybe one of the state traffic enforcement agencies being encouraged to put more people, I get it. But the problem is the feds don't understand any of this stuff. So they give you money for these feel good programs like, you know, and they're driving the money drives enforcement of that's not what those neighborhoods need. The least person who was a problem in my neighborhoods was not the illegal alien standing on a freeway off ramp selling oranges. Is it illegal? Yes. Does it cause some traffic stuff? Yes. But a lot of people get fresh oranges and it feeds that guy's, you know, provides that person with some level of substance. So they're not on welfare. Did I have illegal aliens who were horrendous problems selling dope? Yep. And when the Mexican cartels took over the crack market with a work ethic like they had, that was some of the worst epidemic levels of crack selling. Those are the ones I'd rather be working. But we don't have funding for that. We have funding for what the feds say we need funding for. And that funding is never going to be street level uh, enforcement stuff because most of those tend to be low income areas uh, impoverished areas, people of color, it all, and it turns into this big racism garbage. So that's not where the money goes, but that's where the problem is. So now none of that stuff's getting done. And what are the neighborhoods having the problem? And 
we are having people voting for non-responsive policing now. Liberals can't run PDs. I'm sorry, that just might, might not make people feel good, but that's just a God's honest truth, is they have no clue about running a police department because a lot of this progressive stuff is done off of emotions, and police work should not be done off of emotions. So that's how you get these COPS programs or federal programs that are not really helping anything. And I'm going to give you an example of probably what a, a case, a high-profile case that exemplifies the problems of people in the community being fed so much garbage that they don't even, they lose sight of what's important. The Alton Sterling case in Baton Rouge. Black career criminal standing outside of a convenience store selling illegal CDs, but he was the local crack dealer. That uh, Selling the illegal CDs was a front for this. So here you have this guy who's a career criminal, career felon, drug dealer in your neighborhood. The police get called because he pulls a gun on a homeless guy who asked him for some money or somehow approached him. So this homeless guy approaches him. He pulls a gun on the guy. So now we have the career criminal felon, drug dealer, carrying an illegal firearm, threatening people. To me, this is who we don't want in our neighborhood. This is the guy who is killing teen children. This is the one who is killing people in your neighborhood. Right there. It's all guys like Alton Sterling. It's your your felon in elite who, who carries guns and sells drugs. Those are your bad guys. Cops roll up, get in an encounter with him, rolling around the ground. The guy tries to pull a gun out of his pocket and they shoot him. And the cops are bad because they're white. Mm. This is, and I don't, this is a case even Donald Trump said, well, that one, you know, Alton, you know, mentioned Alton Sterling. I mean, we can leave out the whole Michael Brown and some of these other ones. But here is a textbook case of you have two cops who put their lives on the line, and I could sit there and critique some of the tactics and whatever. But the reality is these two guys rolled up on a career criminal felon with a gun. Who tried? Who who? All he had to do was surrender. Chose not to. Got shot by the cops in a violent confrontation, and the cops are bad. And that city rioted over that. Mm. How do you how do you now send the message of policing there? So you go back to Daryl's thing of let's go profit loss. I want to have police officers come into your neighborhood and give you competent service in an expeditious manner to solve your problems. When they do do that and you punish them for it, they're going to stop doing that. Right. So we need to start being fair about this on what we're reporting on and where stuff comes from. What you will now get from things like that happening is I will give a couple of examples that shames me as a retired police officer, the New York PD firearms enforcement. This is the same place where officers went on a plane to pull Bob Vogel off a plane because his plane was transferred through New York, had a firearm in this locked luggage that he never acquired, took possession of whatever, came up on an x-ray, cops took him off a plane for illegal firearms possession in New York, 
You, uh, I'll show you where there's about a zillion guys with illegal firearms possession. You march your butts down to the county jail, and I guarantee you, you can find hundreds of felons who are in possession of a firearm in the commission of a crime. Go work those guys. But who do they work in a lot of these big cities? John Q. Citizen passing through at the airport. COVID enforcement. How many people were violently arrested over a mask? Yeah. I watched in absolute shame a bunch of L.A. County Sheriff's deputies ground stuff, bringing in two lifeguard boats, all of this stuff to chase down a guy paddleboarding by himself in the Pacific Ocean alone. At some point, people need to ask themselves, is that really what I want for police work? Is this really what I want my cops doing? At the same L.A. County Sheriff's Department that was releasing everybody they could for COVID. Mm. Man, this is a deep rabbit hole. Well, it's, Now you I know, see why you had is, notes. <laughs> this is why somebody needs to talk about this. Might as well be me, because, you know, my uh, my problem with offending people sometimes doesn't matter. Well, and they, always you met- told me, they always told me at work, Daryl, you're always right, but my God, your delivery. So, <laughs> you know, but, but hey, tacos, man, there's a future <laughs> yeah, for all of us. There's a future for me in tacos, not in this. But um, it, where does this come from? This comes from management group think. And we've got three layers of this that is destroying our police departments, destroying our relationship with the public, and destroying any level of sensibility in our society. And a lot of this comes down to groupthink management, you know, because nobody wants to say, why are we doing this? Because you don't get to stay as a manager in that. You have a situation where the people running executives running police agencies are not, did not get there from being incredibly awesome long-term street cops. They did not get there for being 10 year fire or uh, field training officers. They did not get there coming through as firearms instructors in any major police department. That's not where they came from. They really have no idea about all that stuff, and they were probably not very good at it. Combine that now where we have a media that's not helping. Oh, everybody wants to complain on Fox News now about the crime levels, but the media, the rest of the media, and there's complaining about it, but we have a media that is not doing any justice on doing actual journalism. They are helping with a political narrative. So we run into this whole issue that you have people driving this, and these are all the people, and then we have our politicians who will make something out of everything if it makes them look good to what they think is a constituency. So now you have people in the neighborhoods most affected by violence are being represented by police management who have no idea about policing those neighborhoods, a media that has no interest in actually being journalists and politicians who have demonized everybody else, except for the people who really need the assistance in those neighborhoods. 
And there's really no way to fix this right now. You know, um, the, they just had some politician on discussing that 911 is a privilege, which goes back to my original thing that apparently 911 now is some sort of privilege thing. Yeah, it's a privilege for paying taxes. Taxes. You're dang right it's a privilege that I should be able to pick up my phone. Now what have we done from the police management side, the executive management of police departments and the politicians who run those cities? I can take every piss poor police situation that the media has overdone over and over and over and take that apart. And I can tell you almost everyone comes down to one of three things or usually all three negligent hiring, negligent training and negligent retention. And who is responsible for all three of those things? Ooh, that's a dicey topic. Who's responsible for hiring? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And then who's responsible for training the people you hire? And if they don't meet the, um, they don't meet the standards that you've set out, who is in charge of then getting rid of them? That seems to be all the same people, DB. Yeah. And you know, who's held accountable every time there's one of those bad incidents, zero people, not those ones. So again, who, you know, we're doing comes back to what does the public really want? When I tell you that the public wants to be able to call 911 and a competent police officer shows up, but if you set a standard, a high standard for those people that is based on the standard is when somebody in our our area calls 911, I am going to send them an incredibly competent individual of whatever that is who is trained to a high standard to help them with whatever emergency you have. Going back to this, the public wants a highly trained, well-equipped professional to respond to their emergencies. Is that what they're getting right now? Are we hiring the best and the brightest? Are we training them to the highest standards possible? I'm laughing right now that everybody's making such a big deal about the Bakersfield qual that Mike Weidlich came up with. Right. right. I'm like laughing at this because it's like, yeah, there was a time when we could set a very high standard for people and they could all do it. Uh, you know, well, and the agency, ones that couldn't didn't didn't get didn't to do it, it, right? Yeah. No, you didn't get to stay. You know, you didn't get to do this job. And now it's like, well, if we just make make them horrible marksmen. Uh, everything will be all better. If, if I think we just had a case in Florida and sadly for an agency where I like the sheriff, that sheriff had to get up and explain that a female criminal career criminal armed with a BB gun, a deputy was killed because 66% of the rounds fired at her did not hit her, but one of them did hit a deputy who died. Tragic. Well, when we set a standard that is 30%, that it's okay to miss 30% of a target in training on a one dimensional paper target on, you know, 
pretty tame conditions. Would you be shocked if that turned out to be uh, half or 75% worse performance under a crisis in poor lighting and poor conditions? You know, it was an act of God for me to get my department. We picked up, I, I took the LAP, the old LAPD SWAT A qual, made that our patrol qualification, and required 100% on a silhouette to pass. Now, you only needed a 70% score in patrol. SWAT needed 90%. You had to get a particular score, but you had to put 100% of those rounds on target, which included firing at a, re, a, a reasonable expected speed at tw- out to 25 yards. And you know what we happened? We had, we had not many bad, sh- we, well, we had no more questionable, weird, goofy shootings. My guys were in all, everybody was then shooting at like 90 plus percent in the field. And we're doing exceptional jobs on shooting, had no liability to the department, actually hitting all the right people, decking felons uh, efficiently without shooting them 400 times. You know, I mean, everything was peachy. And six months after leaving the department, they dismantled the entire program. Why? Because it's hard and it's expensive. So what they just said was, and my department was no different than anybody else, what they just said is it's cheaper, it's easier to do poorly. Because it's expensive to send you, the public, a a well-recruited, well-trained, well-vetted, and well-retained individual than it is we can just give you crap and it's okay. And the worst thing that's going to happen is we're going to go to a funeral for a cop or multiple cops. How many did we have this week? Oh, geez. I, I, we I don't care. Cops shot this week or something ridiculous. And yeah. you know what? Did, the, did any of those police chiefs at any of those agencies get picked on by the media? Nope. nope. Everybody felt bad for them. And everybody left him alone. Nobody asked a single question of, are, are, are any of these cops dead, injured, whatever, because maybe we didn't train them to a high enough standard. Maybe we didn't have enough resources to protect them. Maybe we didn't do the best job we could to make those guys' jobs better. No. Everybody gets a pass, and it's just everybody gets a, a sad note because a police officer get killed. And in two weeks, nobody's going to care except their families and their pipes and folded flags and all that will feel bad. And we'll wear a t-shirt and we'll have a Facebook memory. But the reality is, is nobody gets to pay for that in that organization. Now, if one of those same officers shoots a minority of any sort, the whole world comes crashing down on them. Even if it was the best shooting in the entire world, even if you shoot Alton Sterling, even if you shoot the heavily the armed felon drug dealer who's the guy who is shooting your children in these gang shootings that everybody hears, oh my God, in Chicago they have umpteen zillion people getting shot. And you know what everybody's doing? Does anybody really care? Obviously not. They'd rather take those hits than actually go out and engage the guys who are doing the shootings. Because you know what? When you engage those and that same community doesn't back you and the same police department doesn't train their officers to best deal with those, 
you end up with a problem. You know, you end up with that crisis that ends up that nobody seems to be able to fix. And the fix is a training fix and a hiring fix and a retention fix that we can't do right now because the public has no mouthpiece to tell the police department all I want is a competent, well-trained, well-equipped professional to come to my emergency. And that's where we have a problem. And that's what needs to get addressed. And we are we and we have nobody in place to make that happen. So let's circle back a bit. So what okay, do you Jen. Yeah, circle back sake. <laughs> oh, peppermint I patty. Almost, I almost miss her now. <laughs> I actually do miss her. Uh but so circling back to what do you think the public expects out of policing? That's what they expect. They expect you to send them a professional when you're having an emergency. That's what the public really wants. So let's let's qualify that a little bit. You know, I mean, uh, at, at some point, you and uh, probably Mel, because hunt, hunting, uh, will yes. accompany me and, and a few others to uh, the western part of the state where uh as a friend of mine and i went out uh and had an excursion out there one night he goes hey you know we're we're hunting at night and we we i know we got the permits but what if the law shows up and i said i said you know mike we're the closest thing to law enforcement they've seen in this county in quite a while uh and we weren't doing anything illegal he was just concerned like okay do you have all the paperwork straight for a depredation permit I said, right. I said, yeah, but the, but we don't need to worry about that because we're the closest we're thing it. to cops that we're it, right? Uh, so in that extreme rural community, the expectation was uh, you might get a deputy tomorrow morning. You might get a deputy right. in an hour, two hours, three hours, maybe. So Urban, Ameri- Urban America is going to need to learn a lesson from rural America is rural America has been dealing a long time with dialing 911 and nobody's coming right now. And yeah, you know we, who their and you know who their first responders are themselves. Right. Uh, you call a you actually call a neighbor. You what, know, that type of thing because that is going to be where we are right now. That's sort of the future of the urban America is and for urban America who likes to subcontract stuff like that because they don't have It isn't like rural America where people actually can take care of themselves. Their neighbor will come over and help them. You know who's going to do it? And I I, I predict a rise in private law enforcement contractors for certain communities who are going to be providing law enforcement services to those who can pay. And, you know, I'll tell you right now. Uh, if you look at, for example, the community I live in, I predict at some point this will have its own armed security force rather than unarmed guys uh, and dependent on some other things for safety. Do you think that, and they do this now, for example, in South Africa, a lot of third world countries and second world places that have seen what we're seeing right now is their daily life. Um, 
this is already a thing. Do you think that the local contract law enforcement service, security services are going to be worried about narcotics on the highway? No. You think they're going to be worried about, you know, some sort of silly program that somebody emotionally feels good about as to what they're doing? Do you think they're going to be generating funds from the residents of those communities as far as administrative enforcement and ticketing and code enforcement and stuff? you think they're going to be doing any of that? They're going to have one job. And you know what that one job? Well, they're going to have two jobs. One job is when you have an emergency and call, they will be right there. Most of those contracted services around the world, they have epic response times because they're running multiple, you know, two-man armed response units that will come to your emergency right now. And when they're not doing that, they're ensuring that the people who cause you emergencies don't are not allowed in your area. Right. I, I and saw it. And do you think the citizens complain about that? No. And I, I, <laughs> I saw a really, uh, firsthand example of that, uh, about, 12 years ago, I went on a, a, like a scuba diving trip to Cozumel. And one of the big sales points for the resort was uh, we have armed private security on, on scene, on staff, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, uh, we had somebody in our group that had a, a minor issue with, Hey, somebody took my dive computer out of my bag. Mm -hmm. Um, and this security officer shows up and says, okay, when did you lose it? We're like, and he speaks perfect English. We're in Mexico. When did you lose it? Uh, in the time it went from the van to where my room is, he goes, all right, I'll be right back. And about 10 minutes later, here comes the dive computer. And we're like, well, do we need to report this to the local police? You know, we keep the serial numbers. And he's like, absolutely not. Don't talk. Nope. And, and, and I, so being the inquisitive <laughs> gentleman, I am, I said, I said, why is that? And he goes, well, likely the person that stole it probably knows the local police here. And provided I get to it before they do, we'll see, uh, we'll get it back for you. Now it's going to cost you. <laughs> and I mean, right. now it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, Hey, it's going to cost you the price of that item to get it back. It was like, Hey, we got to pay a guy to go talk to a person that might be connected with people. So he's got a lot of risk involved in this and he's got to have some negotiating capital. And I saw that transpire firsthand and it was like, you know, it was a minor inconvenience, but we are in essentially a compound that is walled off from the rest of the society there. Um, and somebody in that, that community had decided to victimize somebody that was a tourist there. Uh, don't know who it was. Don't know what happened to him. All I know is for 20 bucks, that piece of equipment showed back up about an hour later. And it was like, sorry for your inconvenience. Hope you enjoy your stay. And, uh, you know, the guys, the guys carrying guns that were wearing uniforms that didn't say anything about local, national, federal, <laughs> anything went no. right back to their post and went, mm-hmm. have a good stay. If we can get you anything, let, let us know, you know? 
So you look I, at any of the major resort areas around the world and places that aren't great. Go get off a boat in Jamaica. Go stay at a resort there. You know, the 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 the, the garbage isn't allowed on the resort grounds. I mean, I was at one of the most exclusive, beautiful places on the planet ever down in Panama. And you went through, there was a guy standing there with a Mossberg shotgun who opened the gate to let you in. And there was another one down on the beach to make sure that, you know, non-residents were that, that there were no non-residents or guests on that facility. Uh, welcome to our future. Well, I mean, we can't. St- who's who's signing up to be a cop right now in downtown urban anywhere? Well, our mutual bud, uh, Greg Elifritz, just wrote a pretty lengthy article <laughs> about seeing third world type activities go on here in the U.S. Really fascinating oh, article on active response, and I think he did it on his weekend knowledge dump and some other things, and and. I love Greg. He's just a great dude. You know, I'm tuned in and subscribed and having been to some of the same locations he's, he's been, uh, I see a lot of similarities with uh, that. What's going on. I mean, yeah. you know, I tell people, I go, our former minimum wage security guards are going to be our new cops and our new protective security. People are going to be all the cops who've been out of run out of law enforcement and all the military guys have been run out of the military because they don't fit. And I mean, it's, it's literally, uh, becoming Mexico. And you know, if the public doesn't step in and ask for the change, they're going to get Mexico because if you, in all honesty, the elites who are running things right now, is it, is it tough being a rich person in Mexico? Is it tough being a rich person anywhere? No. And that's it. If you're the entitled elite class and the whole goal of this is let's get rid of the middle class and any of their expectations, the middle class is really who needs nine one one. If you think about that, and this is getting just destroyed, you know, so, you know, you, you have this situation now where people are going to have to pony up and take care of the other, the other thing is on top of taking care of yourself, Nobody's taking care of helping anybody. I mean, they've had all these reports this. Well, my God, some poor lady was screaming for help or doing it and nobody helped them. Well, what's the reward in that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go engage some criminal who's out on bail for the last person he murdered. And I'm going to go get involved in that. Where the only people that it's going to get prosecuted is. Yeah, exactly. And God forbid if they find out you got insurance or something, you know, then the lawsuits come and everything else. I mean, this is where we've degraded ourselves into society because, again, the public can't voice what they want. You know, they say they want that. Well, oh, my God, they're just shooting unarmed minorities every minute. Uh, I think it's like 400 to one of going the other direction. But yeah. yeah, do we have something? And you know why that happens? Every one of those cases you really don't like, I can attribute to negligent hiring, negligent training, and negligent retention. Every single dang one of them. And again, who is responsible? And is the public holding those people responsible? Are you holding the person who was hired for a job who had no business doing it? They were improperly trained to do that job. 
and then they got kept around even though they were incompetent at their job. Is that who's paying the price or is the person who was responsible for well, they just throw that poor individual under the bus? Daryl, here's a here's a really this is just my inquisitive mind working again, which is kind of scary at times, but we've seen trends like this in the past. So let's go back to what the roaring twenties and then fast forward into the forties and then the sixties and then the nineties, right? Like there's, there's been this ebb and flow in the policing world that done some modicum of study on, but, but mainly it's been from, uh, stories passed on from the ages because so, so, so you had to ask me the captain history question huh right but <laughs> but i don't mean it in like a formalized no. history setting because i, 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 I know officers you, from this, the 50s i know officers that from the 60s this, this 70s is, 80s 90s until today and what i'm seeing is there's there's been this ebb and flow of you know i i'll give you a for instance uh 42 years ago when, when my dad was involved in a lethal force incident, right. <laughs> Which shaped my future. I've found, uh, but that being said, uh, reading the media reports from that era and a lot of the challenges that they had then it's nothing new. Uh, I go back and I pull, you know, an article from the the fifties and it's like, well, you know, is police brutality a thing, right? So it, it's not that the, the narrative or the underlying uh, the underlying narrative has changed. It's just the perception of it. So if you look at the twenties and thirties, what changed that you got to remember Bonnie, I think probably from Bonnie and Clyde probably still sets a record for the number of people attending a murderer's funeral, mm-hmm. um, you know, a horrendous evil murder. I mean, they were, you know, they, they popularized crooks back then, like what we're dealing with now. What, what changed it? Right. World there War you II. go. So you World said, you said it right there. They popularized crooks right. like they World are now. It. Right. World War Two changed it. I, I I don't see a World War Two thing coming. Maybe, <laughs> you know, but um, I, I think we're going to be throwing nukes around before we're trying to. Well, we couldn't mobilize. We couldn't do that now anyways. I think we've got uh, 21 percent of the people who are qualified for military service are ab- are even in any any kind of condition to serve. Uh, same people who used to become cops. A lot of the cops. You know, we rolled into the 50s off World War II. Most of law enforcement were, were all those World War II vets. Okay. You roll into the 60s, most of the cops in the 60s, Korea War, World War II vets, supervised by. We get into the 70s, a lot of what we're dealing with right now, very similar to the 70s. You know, back when New York used to have two, 3,000 murders a year. Yeah, that was back then, 70s and going into the 80s. That was like one we, person ago. Yeah, we survived. uh, You know, I tell people, I go, you got to remember, we survived that because the cops were so hard back then is most of those cops. When I started at the police department, I was the first person they ever hired off a college campus. The number one first dude in 1988. Prior to that, almost everybody I worked with came out of some sort of military environment. A lot of these guys were Vietnam era combat vets. Uh, Syria, and you know, the world was a different place during the Cold War. Everybody forgets, like 
being in the army in Europe was fairly serious stuff. Uh, and those people were all supervised by people who had been to Vietnam, Korea, and were and heavily supervised by, they had truly uh, greatest generation people running organizations. So you had really hard, hard people dealing with a lot of this during very hard times. Fast forward to today. That's what I'm missing today that I look at this going that we may not come out of this because I don't see where you're going to get the people to come out of it. Who don't we recruit anymore? Military vets. We got tons of people out there who served in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, even, you know, I mean, those should be making up a bulk of our police departments. They've actually been in a combative environment. They have served in places with people who don't look like them, speak like them, which is pretty good training for going into what cops do. They lived away from home from mommy and daddy. They've been self-sufficient and they understand uh, paramilitary rank structure. That's all we should be recruiting. And you can get every gender, color, sexual orientation. You can get all of those right out of the military. And that's not who we're hiring. They almost avoid them because they think everybody's got some sort of, because we've made people, you know, like PTSD is a popular thing to have. Um, You know, where everybody apparently has it because that's what these agencies are afraid of. When you have the people who are most already, able to handle the stresses of police to work. We already have those existing that we could actually do some good for them by putting them in an environment where those skills they've developed and coping mechanisms are in a good place. We don't hire those. We're hiring people with no experience whatsoever in life. And then we throw them out there and we give them a choice of screaming and shooting. And we don't understand why we have all these problems. And then they get trained to a standard of minimal state standards. And nobody wants to be better than that. Nobody's really fighting to go, well, we're like, uh, our new qualification is going to be double all the distances of the state minimum standard in half the time. That's our new qual course. Nobody's doing that. And the only people we want is people who can deal with that. As we have talked about before, the people most able to handle critical force incidents are the people who are so skilled they can let it develop the longest and spend more time in the evaluation process before they get into the threat elimination process because they have the training experience and skill set that allows them to spend more time in the evaluation process or call the ball and spend less time in it because what they're seeing is they can deal with that situation right now in a legal, ethical, and righteous manner. But sitting there screaming is not doing anybody any good. And again, and that's not, and and this is the thing. Do you think the public likes, you know, I'm, I'm watching video after video. Please drop the gun, drop the gun. I don't want to hurt you. Please drop the gun. Please don't. I really don't want to. Is that the message you think the public wants to? Because it disturbs me to see it. And I think the public is that's not what they want either. When there's some animal walking around your neighborhood with a firearm threatening people. Do you really want a cop standing out there begging with the person to please Pretty please with sugar on top. 
Because that's how those situations escalate into tragedies over and over and over and over again. I don't know the details of what happened. I know in L.A. they just had some poor dude on a carjacking off of a chase with a murder suspect who transferred vehicles, carjacked a guy, drug him to his death for two miles. Should have maybe somewhere in there we shot that piece of crap to death early. Every There is nobody in L.A who wants to shoot anybody as a law enforcement officer, no matter what they're doing, because every single one of them that I've talked to are scared to death of George Gascone prosecuting them. So who, you know, who pays that price? The poor guy who got drugged for two miles to his death because the cops are scared to death of using lethal force. So do you think that is that what the public wants? Do you think that this is a societal problem? Or do you think this is just a generational gap that we are transcending currently? I, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> I, honest <laughs> well, to God. I, I, you know, I, I, I sit there and I think we are so polarized right now because we have mm. the people we talk to in our own circles who are just disturbed by the whole thing and we hate everybody. And then you look around, all I have to do is pull something up on a news story on the internet and look at the comments and go, are you kidding? And I'm not interested in hugging this out with any of these people. I, I think we're past hugging it out. Um, we have just gotten to the point of it, it's, it's our entire society is in conflict. So, and this is what I'm, I'm kind of bringing it back to is, uh, you know, aside from all the administrative issues and hiring issues and all this, uh, one of the, the things that I've seen that's been a real transformational jumping off point that I will, it's the best way I can quantify it, is, uh, you know, the public getting extremely... Uh, I hesitate to call it voyeuristic, but it, it but it is. When the advent of body cameras went full tilt, which I, I get it, right? I mean, I understand why they're there. Uh, and there's pros and cons on both sides. The people that have them, the people, right, I get it. Uh, but when, when middle America got a front row seat to what actually transpires in the most violent depths of society, it turned their stomach. Uh, and the only thing I can relate that to is the Vietnam War. And here's why. That was the first war we had major correspondence, front row, the Iodrang Valley, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the, we were soldiers once and young. That was like the first time ever that, that middle America had seen the violent reality of, of war. Uh, and now we're seeing that in the policing side of the house, right? The domestic, I hate to call it domestic military, but you're essentially the non-deployable military that does the biddings of the, of, of the law abiding tax paying citizen, right? The voting citizen. Uh, and now everyone has a front row seat. So everyone has an opinion. I always, I, I try to bring things back to the, the, my mom situation, right? What does my mom see when she sees somebody getting struck with a baton 18, 20 times? She goes, oh, my God. And she has the advent of a 
a policeman's son that goes, look, here's all the reasons that happened. It had nothing to do with the officer just wanted to do that that day. It had everything to do with the officer had a task and had a purpose that day. And the purpose was to pluck that weed from the Lord's garden of society that day. Uh, and that person was, it was unwilling to, to comply with that. Uh, so I think that has a, been a big jumping off point is when we had, we have, taxpaying middle-class law-abiding Americans that are already divided on the political spectrum about half and half. And now they get a front row seat to see what real violence looks like. And it turns their stomach, just like it turns the stomach of every cop I've ever known. And they get to see what the intervention in true violence looks like. And it's shocking to their conscience. It is. I mean, I can't think of another way to to summarize that other than to intervene on the behalf of the law-abiding public onto a violent criminal actor is an extremely shocking incident, right? It, it it's violence it, porn, well, well, right? Well, here's well here's the problem is they have gotten. So one of the best things, and because it, it was my era is when cops came out, is the public got to see what we dealt with on a daily basis of idiots. I mean, they got to see what it would, what, what was actually going on out there. Like, you know, they got to actually see criminals doing criminaling stuff and the results of that. And, you know, you really didn't see people coming out when they saw how the cops were dealing with these people. On video, they could see how stupid the the criminals were being, the officer responses. They got to see a lot into the spectrum. Okay, fast forward. Is the public offended by, well, there's two things with the body cam videos that drive me nuts. The first thing is that officers are getting no backing from their agencies, from the politicians, and from the criminal justice system of everybody who screws up on one of those who lies and complaints, who does that, are not being punished for it. Yet the officers are being heavily scrutinized and punished for the same thing. See, to me, we should be putting handcuffs and jail time for people who file false police reports that are complete lies once they see the video. That's how it was sold to everybody, is this is going to protect you as much as it protects the public, and that's not how it's worked in the past, is the public gets to criminals and People get to lie with no repercussions. And the officers, if God forbid they do something, they make a mistake, they do something wrong, the hammer of Thor comes down on top of them. So the other problem is that is disturbing to me is what we're seeing on those body cam videos. I'm appalled. You know what I'm appalled at? how horribly we're responding to violent criminals is the public seeing violence. And then they're seeing a amateur hour response to that violence. They are seeing these incidents turn. They are not being professionally controlled. They are not having a crook who's not responding to directions efficiently taken into custody because we're not hiring or training the people who can do that. That's the problem. 
If the public, the, the public has this perception that these cops are all MMA fighters and top level shooters and do all of the, you know, they all shoot like military special operations commandos and they all fight like the, and they're all on the equivalent level of the Gracie's. And guess what? They're not. Now, are there a few out there? Yeah, I think we just saw a video of a guy putting his cup of coffee down, walking outside the car, 182 yards. So did the public become aghast at that? No, they pretty no, much applauded it. Was, it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, finally, somebody who's not firing 7,000 rounds out into the public and screaming and loading mags into his gun backwards, you know. Cup of coffee on the dash, get out doing some police work stuff, you know, and, and, that's the problem. and talking <laughs> calmly the entire yeah, time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's no screaming and crying and oh, my God, and please, I'm begging you drop the gun, drop the gun bang. you know, that the public got to gets to see sometimes perfect use of force. But what they mostly see is unprofessional amateur hour use of force. And again, going back to who is responsible for not giving the public what they, what they expect. See the public expects that when the cops show up and somebody's being horribly stupid, they efficiently take the person into custody. That doesn't look as bad as what the crooks doing. You know, most of these incidents stem from horrible resistance from a criminal. Okay. And what the public's appalled at is not that the criminals resisting and the officers using force. What they're appalled at is the use of force is so amateur or goes so horribly bad because all of a sudden the officer gets put in a position of facing resistance. They have not really been trained to overcome in a professional, efficient manner. So what does it take to fix it? You know, it's regaining a public trust, and I don't see that being the thrust right now. So I'm not hearing, you know what, we're going to go out and we're going to, uh, we obviously broke this with defund the police and that didn't work because the only thing that really got defunded is hiring the right people and training them properly. That's what got defunded. Um, and then we've sent a message to anybody else out there who really wants to do some great police work to not do great police work, just show up and take a report. It's the easiest thing to do. So society has to hit rock bottom to make a change. It's like kicking dope, you know, or whatever. It's like, we've tried to explain to people like giving people money who are on dope or programs doesn't work. They got to hit rock bottom. And usually the best place to clean them out is jail. Because that's for most people, they're rock bottom. Some people will never hit it. But it, it, ask any recovered homeless doper that they, they got clean in jail, not from somebody giving them a hotel room to use dope in. So, you know, the public has to get sick and tired enough of things being the way they are. They then need to get out and put the right people in charge who can fix it. And the people in charge need to take responsibility and be leaders. And the, the sign of a great leader is how you train your personnel. And we need to go back to saying we are going to stop hiring people based on emotions or 
uh, some quota or that they meet some special status of equity. And we need to hire people who are, who are insanely competent at dealing with violent offenders. Because And then we need to be back to, again, the goal is we're going to put all of this silly stuff we're doing aside. And the goal is now going to be is when you dial 911, we're going to send you an amazingly competent, well-vetted, well-trained professional. And if they can't meet that standard, we get rid of it and find somebody who can't. And you know what that's going to take? You're now going to have to, you're now going to have to, we have put ourselves in a position. You are going to have to recruit that from the private sector. We basically have an oligarchy right now. And you know what? The oligarchs are going to be sucking in all of the well-trained professionals and the public, if the public wants them, they're going to need to recruit them back from that area. Okay. And, you know, God forbid, you know, it's like, you know, it's funny as you know, I tell people, I go look at Mexico, you know, where did the Zetas come from? We train them. They're Mexican green berets. That's the Zeta cartel. That's why they're so good at being a cartel is they're, they've got professional level training and soldiers down there that are working for the bad guys. And everybody, you know, I tell people, I go, that's coming here. And they, oh my God, no cop would ever work for a drug cartel or a criminal organization i go um, most of the most squared away people i know are working in the marijuana industry right now yeah that's shocking isn't it? it well we so we've already normalized it so uh, don't be surprised if this continues as to where we put our 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 bestest our bestest are going to start going where the money is because you've sent them a message that you don't want them inside of uh, communities of color and impoverished communities and uh, marginalized communities. You don't want the officers in there saving those kids. So they're going to go somewhere. It will just pay them. And who loses those communities, those communities lose. I mean, again, you're, you're, you're seeing amateur numbers right now. Everybody's crying about, we saw those numbers of the seventies and Gen X rolled in there and had to clean that whole thing up. So what, <laughs> why was Gen X so good at cleaning that up? That's a, that's a question that I've, I've had for a while. So Gen X is angry right now. So we were lied to. Um, I am a founding member of Gen X. You know, we believed the, we grew up believing the Martin Luther King content of character over color of skin. We we hook, line, and sinkered that. It has been shoved in our face and lied to. We were the first ones who didn't care. We knew Boy George was gay. We knew Elton John was gay. I mean, Rob Halford was a little bit of a surprise, but when you look back, you're like, yeah, totally. Um, we knew Freddie Mercury was gay. Nobody cared. We're that generation. So when they started coming in as cops... We came in behind sort of coming off of uh, Carter to Reagan and finally started getting in with cleaning stuff up. You got to think a lot of the big cities had finally elected conservatives to run their stuff. Look what was run in Los Angeles. Look what was run in New York for the first time ever. They had, you know, look at how New York cleaned itself up from the 
trauma of that they went through in the 70s, so 60s, 70s, and 80s. What did New York do? Broken windows. Man, everybody goes to jail. We don't tolerate anything anymore. Yeah. And <laughs> cap that off with Giuliani and boom, here we are. Well, Giuliani is the one who, you know, I mean, I'm not the biggest Giuliani fan of the world, but when he's a hundred percent, right. When he tells you liberals can't run police departments, he was, that's a Giuliani quote. He's a hundred percent on the money on that. And again, you know, I was there for it. You can piss and moan about Daryl Gates all you want, but you know, with what he was facing, you know, and that was a lot of transitional stuff that was going on there. But again, it goes back to you look what L.A. was doing with the they had 25 percent of the numbers that NYPD had. You know, I, yeah. I remember LAPD cops of the 60s and 70s. Man, <laughs> yeah, that's all you want to do. I mean, you know, the uniforms, the stature, they all were big, tall, strapping, you know, individuals. And they put up with, I mean, I remember going to Ram games when I was a kid in the Coliseum and watching them work a fight over just seeing PR 24s fly. I mean, they, they intolerant of stupidity, just intolerant. And you know, the public supported that. Now there was, well, now was there some serious inequities we should have learned from that was transitioning the communities of South central LA that was, I think, a problem caused from transitioning off of some generational stuff that the police department sometimes gets mirrored into that isn't right. Yeah, was some did 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 we sort of uh, by some of the enforcement tactics and and poor stuff did we create the Crips and Bloods? Absolutely. But by the same token, you know, the dealing with a crack problem, the PCP problems out there you know, was a nightmare, but a lot of that got dealt with. Um, you know, I was there when we started changing shifts, three strikes, you're out. We cleaned the streets with three strikes because most of the people who went to prison behind three strikes had 47 strikes, right? So all the people now who are committing their third murder while they're out on bail, see three strikes would have wiped all of them. They were all in prison. I mean, we literally cleaned the streets with three strikes and the public I think is ready for that again. I think they're to the point like on your third violent felony, you can probably go to jail forever and we're okay with that. But, you know, jail got so overcrowded, they started playing games with that as instead of doing the third strike out there because you started getting, you know, these uh, DAs that should be criminal defense attorneys. Um, you know, they go, oh, we're not going to charge them with their the burglary. They're going to do it as a parole violation. So they do one year instead of life. So you have the same career criminals floating around. They they miss the, you know, that everybody starts playing with the system. Uh, every time you come up with a new strategy, three strikes clean the problem. Um, they ended up, it became expensive because what happened with three strikes is everybody went to jury trial. So it got expensive. They couldn't plea bargain everything away like normal. The public knew what went on with plea bargaining. They'd go bananas. They'd go absolutely bananas. And see, that's the problem because we don't have journalists anymore. That's what nobody's reporting on. You know, that's what our our journalists are so enthralled with some court, you know, creating some social drama. Nobody's going down to the courthouse and going, what happened? You know, what was the disposition of these cases? 
Oh my God, there was a guy with an ax in a McDonald's in New York. And yeah, he was out. He got just arrested again, you know, a couple of days ago. Yeah. You guys are creating this. Where's the press? Where's the journalists? What I want to know is where's the public outcry. It's starting to be there. The, you know, the, the, the middle class right now has been so crushed in the last year. Um, yeah, I'm looking at ourselves, you know, 401k, 50% of what it was going to the grocery store, paying five and $6 for eggs, you know, putting, putting gas in it. That literally is twice what was costing a couple of years ago. We're getting crushed. I mean, I know we're tired of it. Um, you know, the problem is government is protecting the lower rung of society because they're on public aid and every program in the world to ensure that their lives are okay. And the rich don't care. You know, they're making money on it. You know, and, I, and I think what we're going to see is a big change between what I call Zoom America and blue collar work in America. Blue collar work in America is pissed. Blue collar work in America is angry. And Zoom America thinks everything's great. I, I order my food, comes to my door from Amazon or Uber Eats or whatever. And, you know, I have a contactless pickup at the grocery store. Some kid brings it out, puts it in my trunk, and I go to work on Zoom. They think everything's great. Working class America hates them. And that's where we're seeing some of the political division as well is a lot of that blue collar stuff that used to be straight up Democrat stuff is not anymore. And a lot of the uh, business people that used to be considered Republicans are not because they're like, I order off of zoom. Everything's great. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I, I think we have a societal clash going on as well. Uh, very much like we had in the sixties, but over different stuff, we're having this uh, conflict between, you know, literally truck driving, working, going to work every day, driving your work truck for an hour at gas prices, the way they are to your construction job people. And then you have somebody signing on to zoom and they're jammies. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, in your, in your bougie condo, like you have. <laughs> yeah. But I still got to drive to work, man. Right. <laughs> I just did that because the gas to fill my mower got too expensive, right? Right, yeah. So, you know, I, I think, you know, we're going to, it's going to break here and it's going to be interesting to see how it breaks. And once it's broken, is when we're either going to rebuild or just devolve into Mexico or, you know, pick anywhere, you know, Mumbai, India. You know, most of your big cities are going to start looking like that. We just imported a couple million people who don't belong here. Where do you think they're going to go? Right. They're going to be living like rats in urban America. Okay. You know, the, the, our, our urban cities are going to look just like, they're going to look no different than, you know, what we see in India or China or any of these other places. And okay. Yeah, that's what you want. Well, haven't seen the trends in law enforcement across, uh, which I, I made the comment on a podcast the other night and, and it had to do with equipment, right? It, it was nothing really societal, but I said, you know, most modern policing would benefit a lot more from studying history than they would from finding the newfangled gadget, right? Uh, as far as, and I'll give an example. Uh, you know, I asked a, a panel, I said, when did the patrol rifle come to prominence? Oh, in the 1994. And I'm like, yeah, no, 
wrong the, Eric. 1870 something yeah and i said <laughs> yeah. I, and, I, and i even posed the question i said well when did the sub caliber carbine come to prominence they're like, oh, uh, they're like, again, um, yeah. well, you know, the 90s, 2000s, they started working on these nine millimeter carbines, you know, the Colt Commando and all this. And I'm like, uh, how about I had a 3220 pistol and a 3220 rifle? Huh? Like in the 1800s, maybe, maybe we should, maybe we should look back in the, the annals of time here and get a little perspective on, you know, and you and I did a podcast on training about nothing everything old or everything new everything old is new again etc right uh so i'm kind of wondering when that paradigm shift's going to happen in Here, modern policing my, my biggest worry is what i think the reason they are doing this you know what because it makes no sense what the political class is doing and the elitist class is doing I truly believe the goal is a nationalized police thing. Yeah. Is where you have a federal government running all policing and uh, prepare for frightening times. Thanks, DB. Man, we went went deep on that one. A reminder, check out today's sponsors, KSG Armory. Find custom Kydex holsters, ksgarmy.com, and EDC Belt Co. Uh, if you have seen the social media, we got some uh, black multicam thanks to DB's influence, uh, but they are limited sale only. More on that. Stay tuned. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. It's always the Off-Duty Entity Podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.